Today, we introduce a new segment that we call IT Reality, where we talk to an actual customer and how they use various software within their enterprise, right now on Novell Open Audio. Welcome to Novell Open Audio, the podcast that connects the Novell user community with what's going on inside and around the Novell universe. I'm your host, Ted Hager, and we've had a lot of requests from our various listeners out there to get some actual customers on the show. Aaron Quill and I were down in the Executive Briefing Center in Novell's Development Center in Provo, Utah, doing a briefing for a company called Hewitt Associates, and we decided to ask Jim Bryce one of the people who works in IT at Hewitt Associates, to come up to the studio and tell us a little bit about Hewitt Associates, how their business works, and why IT is so important to Hewitt Associates. So Aaron Quill and I do this interview right now with Jim Bryce, and let's check it out. Today we're in the studio with Jim Bryce from Hewitt Associates, and we're going to talk to Jim all about what's going on inside of Hewitt as far as their IT organization goes and how they enable Hewitt's business. So, Jim, welcome to the studio. Glad to be here, Ted. Thanks for having me. So, Jim, what is your title at Hewitt? What do you do there? Well, the interesting thing is Hewitt Associates does not have titles, so technically I am an associate. But if I were to come up with a title for what it is that I do, I would say I'm Director of Distributed Server Solutions for the Enterprise. So why don't you guys have titles? It's a traditional thing. It goes back to the founding of the company. It's a cultural thing where everybody is treated as an associate in the enterprise. It's a way of engaging associates and involving them in the purpose of the business. So it's not one of those things like anybody goes to <laughs> and talk to at Bank of America It says vice president on their badge or something no, like that. No, so, <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with a, a key to the executive washroom or anything like that. Oh. I think we've saved many many millions on business cards over the years, but <laughs> nice. other than that. Yeah, because when you have that whole organizational shuffle thing happen, you don't have to get new stuff. Correct. Yes. <laughs> Very exactly. cool. So what is Hewitt? What does Hewitt do? Hewitt Associates is a human resources outsourcing and consulting business. About two-thirds of our business is providing HR management services such as benefits plans, pension plans, health management, flexible benefits enrollment, managing HR plans for the HR administrators in our clients, I mean at our client sites. The other third of the business is focused on traditional HR consulting, whether it be actuarial consulting, compensation consulting, communications work, helping enterprises re-engage their associates and communicate to their associates in more effective ways. The consulting part of Hewitt's business is the part that's been growing considerably in the, the 15 or 14 years that I've been with Hewitt. It's gone from a very small piece of the business that was requested by a number of clients for managing 401k plans and, and health management plans to a internet-facing, completely outsourced management service where we're actually doing fulfillment for clients' 401k plan management, for benefits plan management, for pension plans, and for the cafeteria-style health management 
Okay. So that you know when associates enroll in their in their uh, benefits plans. So you guys actually, your customers aren't individuals or consumers or anything. They're businesses that come to you for these type of services you guys offer. You enable businesses, sort of the way Novell enables businesses, just with a different type of product. Absolutely, yes. I mean, we have two to three hundred major clients that we provide outsourcing services for, and then a thousand or more other clients in our portfolio that we've provided consulting services to over the years. And we have many, many clients that we're providing all types of services for, both consulting and outsourcing. So you're doing massive amounts of data probably in that Absolutely. case because you're, you're piping data to people, you're giving them web interfaces, you're managing identities and those kind of things, right? Correct. We're actually doing record keeping for approximately 20 million what we call participants. Participants would be members of the plans that the organizations that hire Hewitt are participating in, hence the word participants. Okay, so sounds like a lot of IT then is mm -hmm. necessary yes. here. And I actually got to hear the overview. You were here for an executive briefing this morning. You gave us a quick overview of the company. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by how big your IT organization is. Give, yeah. us a, give us the picture, if you would. We have approximately 1,100 IT professionals in our information technology services group. The interesting thing about Hewitt, however, is that that's the infrastructure team. That's the team that's focused on servers, storage, end-user support, desktop support, internally focused applications such as ERP systems, all of that infrastructure. The really interesting part, though, is that in our lines of business within the enterprise, we have maybe another thousand or more professionals who are handling application development, application support, design, uh, in some cases fulfillment and custom work for specific clients. But those individuals, those professionals, would be considered IT professionals in almost any other enterprise. So you're looking really at like a 20... 100 or so people who are just IT professionals working in your organization, some of whom are in the actual IS&T organization. Yes, correct? that's correct. And the number might actually be larger than that. I mean, we have development that's going on offshore. We're about 22, 23,000 associates worldwide. Okay. Um, but for 10% or more, maybe even as many as 15% of the professionals to be IT professionals really says a lot about the nature of Hewitt's business. And it gives a good idea of what kind of thing you guys are doing for serving customers as well. You guys are a technology focused company as far as what you do for customers. That's correct. I mean, we leverage technologies in order to optimize the processes that we provide for our clients. I mean, we don't manufacture anything. We don't inventory anything. I mean, it's all about information, process, and fulfillment. That's, that's what we do. So if you're outsourcing HR departments and things like that, do you really just have like one canned HR application that you're giving to all of your customers? And Well, the short answer to that is yes and no. Okay. Um, a few years back, our business model was focused squarely on adapting our clients to an optimized set of services that we have developed over the years that we provide and that we have built a scalable model around. So in just the past couple of years, we've entered into a new segment of business. It's a business process outsourcing model we call MPHRO, multi-process HR outsourcing. In this business model, we're doing much more than we did in the benefits model. We're actually doing succession planning. We're doing uh, learning management. We're doing recruiting assistance. And that's in addition to all the other services that we provided. The uh, 401k plan management comes to mind. That's been much more challenging because we've not been able to just take on new clients and flip the their services over to our standard model and scale it. 
So it's it's been much more challenging for us because in many cases we've actually had to take existing applications at these new clients and bring them into our own infrastructure into what we call rehost networks. In some cases, we will flip the badges, so to speak, of the associates that worked for the client when Hewitt took over the administration of those services. In some cases, we'll help our clients optimize the staff that they might have had performing that function in the HR group before the MPHRO deal was signed. It's been very challenging for Hewitt from a technology perspective because we've not been able to adapt these services to our standardized models that we've been working on over the years. It's been much more challenging from a technology perspective. So it's a domain of like a lot of change. Each customer's got different situations when you get into that, and so you're making it up as you go along a lot of it. Is that what the challenge is there? I wouldn't say it's making it up as we go along. It's more about understanding all the interdependencies between the various services that the clients might have set up through the years. That's what I meant. (laughs) Yeah. And then in some cases, Hewitt is hired for a BPO deal or MPHRO deal in order to help the client get out of their backward nature or the backward situation that they were in. They might be several revs behind in a PeopleSoft implementation. They might be at a cliff in terms of uh, investment required to bring their services up to speed. In some cases, it's a result of an M&A. There's been lots of reasons why Hewitt has gotten involved in these deals. Yeah, no two companies are alike. So you're moving, but when you take on some of this stuff, are you moving like PeopleSoft? You're moving it from being hosted by the customer, and you guys are taking over the hosting of that? Yes. In most cases, we're taking what the customer has, bringing it into our own infrastructure, into new networking segments in many cases, and then trying to optimize it moving forward from that point, whether that means getting it running first and then coming up with a long-range plan to get them on a later revision or a current revision of said software. So so you've got a, a list or something of all the different types of software that you really prefer and try to get the customers to host their applications on, right? Yes, we do, but it seems that many of the deals have additional pieces that come along for the ride that we have to learn how to manage, how to, how to live with, how to deal with. Can you give us just a basic idea of the types of software that you support? Fundamentally, PeopleSoft is a common component in many of the MPHRO deals. We have our own HRMS solution from a a company that we acquired several years ago called Cyborg. Uh, Cyborg was a payroll contender that also had a large HRMS capability, and that has become one of Hewitt's standard offerings in the MPHRO space. We're trying to keep the ERP focus on those two pieces. We're not actively pursuing getting into the Oracle HRMS or the Siebel HRMS at this point in time. doesn't mean we won't get there in the future. It just means it's not our focus right now. How about more back-end services? I mean, I'd imagine you guys wind up supporting all sorts of different types of databases and such. Yeah, I like to, to say that you know we never saw a database we didn't like. So we've got Oracle. We have Informix. We have DB2. We have SQL Server. We've got DB2 running on the mainframe and in, in some of the legacy business. We've got more technologies than most enterprises have. And it's not like the DB2 is 85% of it and the rest of them are small. No, the Oracle environment is smaller than our DB2 environment, but it's still 12, 13 large Unix servers and a number of smaller ones. So it so we've got it all. On the server side, what type of uh, servers do you guys uh, support and host stuff on? Depends on the application and the whether it's client-facing or not. Most of our client-facing Internet accessible environments are running on Unix, specifically Solaris. 
Most of our internal support systems are running on Windows and some mixture of Solaris. We, you know, a lot of the development environments are internal on Solaris. We're using uh, NetWare for eDirectory in particular. We're also using NetWare for file and print, and that's tied into almost everything that we deliver on the desktop and also tied into what we deliver into the Citrix environment. And since I mentioned Citrix, Citrix is another big piece that we're using to to provide a number of applications that just don't work well over the Internet. Wow, okay, so that's a pretty huge amount of stuff there. Give us an idea, if you would, what's the roster of Novell software that you guys actually run? Well, we have NetWare, obviously. We've been a NetWare shop as long as I've been with the firm. Um, we were very early on in the DirectML technologies before it became Identity Manager. And that's um, the identity synchronization yeah, stuff. Identity so you synchronization. guys probably use that for not just for yourselves, but I would assume possibly sometimes with customers as well for services. We're just beginning to move more into identity management for customers. But for the past five years, we focused a lot on what we call system ID automation, SIDA for short. We have established a process of synchronization for IDs across multiple directories, provisioning users, you know, day one start type work, not day zero start. It usually takes us more than a day to get things going. But we're five years into that, and we actually have a, a meta directory that we've built with the directory that we can provision new users into Lotus Notes, the mainframe, the NetWare environment or the directory environment, our badging system, our online meetings. There's probably a dozen more that I can't even think of right now, and, and that that has really helped the enterprise a lot. That's the key piece of technology that we're using uh, and leveraging in a big way at Hewitt today. And were there other uh, Novell products? Because I took you down a little oh, route Oh, sure. There. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're using, we're using uh, a number of Zen components. We're using Zen for servers to manage the, uh, the NetWare environment. We're using identity management. We're using some of the workstation components in Zen to help manage dynamic local users in the Citrix environment. I could probably talk a little bit more about that because that's actually an, an area of issue for us moving forward with Citrix and dynamic local users. I think that's that's about it. That's pretty much your roster. Do you have oh, any I'm Linux sorry. going I, on as well? I left out iPrint. Okay. Oh, excellent. iPrint is phenomenal how much, how much that has helped our distributed uh, printing environment. I mean, nobody thinks about printing anymore. It's It's so basic to the infrastructure now. People were able to pull up a website and select printers, install drivers. It's been a really nice thing. Um, in terms of Linux, Hewitt is using Linux for a couple of embarrassingly parallel workloads we like to call grid and calc. I mean, I'm sorry, print production and calc. Calc is a service within Hewitt where this is easier to describe via the use case. So let's say a participant decides or wants to know if I were to retire today, what would my benefit be? Or what would my benefit situation look like? The calculation required to answer that question is pretty involved. It takes a lot of cycles, very, very expensive from a CPU processing perspective. We used to do all that work on the mainframe. Until about five years ago, we determined that we can pull that work off and actually run it on a grid of Linux machines. And as a result, we were able to save, I think the estimates are somewhere near $7 million in mainframe MIPS by pulling that work off and running it on about 50 or so Red Hat boxes running dual Intel processors. 
made a huge difference. That's going to blow our listeners' minds, by the way, that we just had you talk about Linux, and it turned out it was Red Hat that you used. So, yeah, well, you know, remember, this was five years ago. Yeah. This was five years ago. So uh, I will add a shameless plug that at this point we are looking at re-architecting that particular service because it's actually running on some older hardware, and it's time to, to lift and shift. And at this point, I am lobbying very strongly with the owners of that application to seriously consider uh, migrating it over to SLES. Now, testify, we did not put you up to that. We didn't even know that before <laughs> nope. I started saying that. I will be completely honest and say that that will save us a lot of money because we're entitled to SLES licenses in our uh, enterprise agreement with Novell, and it makes a whole lot of sense to go that route. So that's why we're doing it. Um, I've got a couple questions kind of getting back to the infrastructure about security. I mean, with hosting applications and services for all these different companies, security just has to be huge for you guys and risk management and all that. I'm sure you guys have to deal with all kinds of Sarbanes-Oxley or HIPAA or whatever, depending on what industry you're doing services for. So you have to know just about all the regulatory out there as well. So that crosses over into that as well. Yeah, I don't know exactly where to begin on that other than to say that PII is the thing we worry about. PII is personally identifiable information. We manage a lot of sensitive information. So I mean, in order to, to do the HR functions that we provide, we've got to know an awful lot. We have it in a number of databases. We do a lot of reporting on that. So our clients are very demanding of our security infrastructure. So one of the thoughts that comes to mind is you know, we have many hundreds of clients. And our business model, in order to be profitable, requires that we share as much infrastructure as possible. So that creates a scenario where our most demanding client becomes our least common denominator in terms of security infrastructure. That's a very challenging situation to be in, but sometimes it, it can actually help us because if we can meet the needs of our most demanding client, that makes the conversations with other clients sometimes much easier. We've seen proposals and questionnaires from clients that go off and, you know, dozens of pages on questions of things that are just complete non-issues for us because of the way that we've architected some of our solutions. Of course, it makes things very difficult for us when we're setting up new infrastructure because of all the various hoops we have to jump through. Now, the types of things I'm referring to are application security assessments. That would be the first most important thing we do. When we bring in a new piece of code, whether it's a major revision or a new piece of code or a new infrastructure component that we've never used before, it has to go through an internal and sometimes an external security assessment. So we have professionals on staff today that will set up an instance of whatever this service or facility is in our lab and hack away at it. And over the years, that's evolved into a, a very valuable process, both for Hewitt and for the vendors, because we're providing feedback to the vendors that helps them close some holes that they might not have known about. And it's sometimes pretty blatant stuff, whether it's uh, you know cross-site scripting attacks that let you... Easy buffer overrun easy, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen a few things that just really surprised me how it could have gotten past QA at some of these vendors. So the vendors are sometimes very thankful for it. Um, one of the issues we run into, though, is, as technologists that are trying to roll out these services for our clients, this adds time. I mean, it's three to six weeks to get one of these security assessments done if we expedite things. But, again, I do want to say it's very, very valuable that we're doing that. And it seems like that would also be a, a reason why customers would come to you for their business as well, as you guys have the experience in holding 
vendor's feet to the fire for the better security and those kind of things. So it seemed like that would be also part of Hewitt's business model is you guys actually have the experience in this. You've identified these kind of things. You've done it for many other customers. If a company doesn't want to have to do all that in their IT department, you guys are actually able to provide some of that. Absolutely. I think that's one of the value adds that our business development staff would be leveraging in the conversations with potential prospects. We are managing very sensitive data for a very large number of companies, and they can rattle off some of the names of those companies. I don't think it would be fair of me to, to mention them in this interview, so to speak. Yeah, that's no problem. But that has to be very, very valuable when some of our potential clients hear who we are audited by with great regularity. So I'd imagine uptime is incredibly important for you guys. What do you do? I assume you do some sort of clustering of servers and such? That's a really very interesting question because uptime in the HR space is not what it is in many other transaction-oriented environments. If there are people from Hewitt listening to me say this, they're probably going to cringe, but I've always contended that availability is... Sure, it's crucial. It's it's very, very important to Hewitt, but it's really not the most important thing for Hewitt. Sure, because it's the HR department. It's not finance. It's not something that's necessarily running 24 hours a day. Is that why? Well, it's important, but I think the quality of the services that we provide, making sure that we don't botch transactions, and we'll take security and reliability over availability any day. <laughs> We're here to mess up your data and share it with <laughs> others 24-7. <laughs> that's right. So... At Hewitt, there are a number of investments that I wish we could make that would improve our overall availability, but those are not the investments that the firm is is really leveraging right now. We're really trying to leverage more shared infrastructure so that we can grow and add more clients. Okay. I've got one more infrastructure question for you before we move on, and and, and that's physical machines versus uh, virtual machines. What are you doing? Okay. In the Intel space... We have been leveraging VMware for a little over three years now. I'm very proud of the team that has established our VMware infrastructure. We have gotten to the point now where, as an enterprise, decisions about hardware for anything that runs on Intel are being made by the hardware team, being made by the the team in my cluster that is responsible for Intel hardware. So when we get a request for a new server, we attempt to ascertain what the capacity requirements are, what the processing requirements are, uptime, physical location, uh, you know, memory footprint, all the things that would normally go into a calculation of how to host said application. But we make the decision. We don't allow a business group to come to us and say, this needs to be a dual core running on a, you know, an HP BL35. No, we decide what it's going to be. You're getting a 486, and you'll like it. (laughs) That's right. Well, hey, if 46 is capable of running it, why not? I mean, Uh that's one of the advantages of the virtualization is if somebody's got a really minuscule workload, I don't have to give them a $2,000 piece of hardware and and all the, the administrative overhead that goes with it to solve that. I'm sorry, I just laugh nowadays. It's really tough for me to get used to $2,000 as the price for a server. I said for the hardware. It's really more like $20,000 to actually run the thing for a year. Right. It's just so strange for me. I've been in the industry a long time, and and to realize how inexpensive servers have actually gotten. $20,000 used to be list price on some of them. Uh, That wouldn't even cover the memory that you would put in to bring them all the way up to like 500 megs of RAM. So percentage-wise, any rough idea physical versus virtual? Oh, I've got better than a rough idea, yeah. Um, Speaking of the Intel space, we have roughly 3,000 servers or 3,000 operating system images that are running in the enterprise today. Currently, about a third of those are virtualized, 
And our plan is to get to 60 to 70 percent of them being virtualized in the next year. Why do you want to do virtualization? Oh, what, do, what do you see as the benefits? Because I've, I've even told the marketing messages from companies that sell virtualization like Novell. But why, oh, why are there, you guys doing it? There are quite a number of advantages. The standardization of the OS images, first and foremost. So, for example, if, if I have a piece of work that doesn't run well in the infrastructure that it's on today, I am forced to migrate. I am forced to go through an operating system reinstallation, reinstallation of all the software stack, retesting, recertification, and it's, it's a lot of work. If I have virtualized that server and I find I need more capacity, I can pick up that virtual image and plop it on a later generation piece of hardware. And in many cases, I'll see the performance increase that I was looking for just by plopping it off of a off of a dual core AMD and popping it on one of the new quad core Intel systems. What I love about that is if he were a marketing guy, Aaron, he would have said flexibility. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually that's a, I mean that's what that is is right yeah. there. That's flexible use of your images and things. Well, there's a few other aspects that come to mind as well. One of them is that we are using tools that let us virtualize physical servers and actually physicalize virtual virtual servers. So. We're in a mode right now where if I have a workload running in a virtual machine that needs to be physical, I can migrate that to a physical server using some of these tools. So we don't lock people into virtualization uh, just because that's what we'd prefer to do. Uh, another big concern is quality of service. I can get much better QoS from a virtual machine than I ever could from a single piece of hardware. So in the past, people might have come to us saying, I've got a workload, I, I, it needs to be reasonably highly available, I don't want to spend an enormous amount of money. We'd end up putting two servers in, you know, one in each of our two major data centers. So you're co-located and You're co-located, and, and, but the reality of the situation was they only needed one server, and the other one is just sitting there idling away, warming the data center, and doing nothing more. Sucking power For and the entire else. time that that server existed. Enter the virtualization world, and now I can create just a single virtual machine. I can carve out a copy of that machine and leave it in the other data center, but it's not running. It's just there ready to be resurrected if I ever needed to run it. But the best part is that everything that was originally done with two servers is now possible in the single physical chassis because the reason they wanted two servers was when we had to perform maintenance, we could shut down one, do the work, and then roll through right. the upgrade, right? Well, on a virtual machine, if I'm doing hardware maintenance using VMware and the vMotion capability, I can actually move the machine over to another physical host, do my maintenance, and move it back, and there's no downtime at all. Furthermore, virtualization allows me to afford much higher quality infrastructure than I ever would be able to afford with individual blades. So, for example, the back end of our VMware infrastructure today is using network appliance and iSCSI. We have uh, 6,000 class six Cisco switches in redundant configurations, and we actually have the, the top-of-the-line net network appliance servers with the dual heads. I don't remember what the model number is right now, but they're the dual-headed beasts. So the chances of there being an outage that brings that down is much, much less than even a RAID controller failure on a small 2U box. You know, that's interesting. Actually, one of the things that we've been talking to quite a few customers about with virtualization, it's kind of what you hit on is uh, for branch automation stuff, because with what's happened with the price of Linux-based clustering, as well as being able to virtualize all these servers, it's beautiful that you could put a little, tiny, inexpensive 
two-node cluster out in a branch location and then run two or three virtual servers living in between those two machines in the cluster. If one of them dies, it doesn't matter. It's just running all three or four virtual machines on one box until you fix the other one. Mm -hmm. But the same idea. That's an amazing amount of reliability and redundancy that you can get for very, very low amount of money. Absolutely. And I, I would argue, and if you design it correctly, you can get a lot more than two or three. <laughs> I mean, we have some uh, some small host configurations running in VM where we're, re we're able to get five or six on average, and I've seen as many as 20, depending on the workload. Yeah, now with these dual cores and quad cores yeah. and Oct cores, what are the anyways called that I'm not with? I have no I'm idea. not even going to try 16 cores that they're saying. Deca core. But, I mean, I, I can only imagine what that's going to do for you. Yeah, and we're already implementing the new quad core in the VMware environment. That, that's another really, really good example. I can implement that hardware without having to reinstall anything. I actually have to shut down the guests on VMware because that's the only way to get them to recognize a new processor family. But that's it. I just got to shut it down and bring it back up on the new hardware. Well, don't worry. This afternoon, I'll show you a way you can do it without. Ah, great. So <laughs> that's because you're doing the briefing later this yes. afternoon. <laughs> that's not for the podcast. So, Jim, we have two last questions for you. And the first one is, you've come out here pretty much every year for quite a while now. Uh, I don't know how many briefings you've come out to annually. You've lost count. Usually, I think it's just before brain chair, just like this one as well. And you'll probably be at BrainShare and have some of your people there as well, correct? Oh, yeah. We'll have about six people there, yes. All right. So the question that I have for you on that is why? Why do you keep coming back? Why are you with Novell? Why is Hewitt dealing with Novell? We have had a strategic relationship with Novell as long as I've been at Hewitt Associates. I was actually hired into Hewitt Associates to implement what was then called Network Directory Services. NDS. Um, NDS, yeah. Hewitt at the time was experiencing double-digit growth as a result of the explosion of the benefits business. We were adding Netware 3X servers at a dizzying pace. I mean, at one point in time, I remember we had a building with about 1,200 people in it that we needed five servers just to serve up the home directories. And we were running out of capacity all the time. I mean, we weren't running out of capacity on the boxes. We were running out of the 250 connection limit, I think is what it was, if memory serves. 256. God, I forgot about that. Yeah, remember tools like oh, the, the, yeah. the not logged in clearer and all yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah clearing yeah, yeah, logins. Wow. Yeah. So I was actually hired by Hewitt to implement Netware 4, and that's how I got my start. From that very first experience at Hewitt, who had already had a pretty mature relationship with Novell, the enterprise at that time, we were given an opportunity to speak our minds and influence the path that Novell, the organization, was going on to improve the products, to add functionality, to adapt to Hewitt's fairly unique needs, our you know, multiple client needs and our, our rapid growth. And that just year after year after year, all of our feedback was listened to very seriously, in many cases acted upon, and I think we've just evolved a positive relationship with Novell through the years where Novell is delivering solutions for us that meet our needs in a very cost-effective way. Very good. Well, with that, my final question for you, because I love hearing that you think that about Novell. I would Novell. expect you would. Yes. But the question on the flip side is, if there was one thing that you could change about doing business with Novell, Let's let our listeners hear, you know, where some of the challenges might be, and we'll let you speak your mind freely on that one. Well, there's some technical challenges. Probably best to speak a little bit about that. 64-bit Windows is an area where the lack of a network client has really hurt us. I spoke earlier about the growth in our Citrix environment, and it really helps to put some numbers around it so people understand. We've got 
somewhere between five and six hundred Citrix Metaframe servers in the infrastructure right now. The level of concurrency that we can get in those servers is very low for what I would like to see. I mean, a typical concurrent rate is 10, maybe 15 users. Sometimes we can push it up to 20, 25. It depends on the complexity of the application. It is good to hear, though, that Citrix is still about where it was when I was last dealing with it yeah. four or five years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, the advances in multi-core technology have really not resulted in 2x and 4x increases in the number of users on Citrix Metaframe. My understanding of it is it comes down to some fundamental limitations in 32-bit windows. There's a shared memory piece that, as soon as you run out of that, the, the performance just tanks. And that makes complete sense because 32-bit systems can only address so much memory. Correct. So for for us, the best opportunity we have for reducing our run rate in the Citrix environment is 64-bit windows. It eliminates that shared memory segment and lets us at least increase by 50% the number of users we can expect to run on the same hardware with the same amount of memory, maybe a little bit more memory, but fundamentally on the same physical systems. The problem we have, though, is because of the very tightly integrated process an infrastructure we have with Novell, you know, we're using eDirectory, we're using Zen, we're using dynamic local users, all of our file systems, of course, are on NetWare, and that has permeated into the Citrix environment so that we can instantiate new Citrix users pretty rapidly on Metaframe servers using all this dynamic capability from eDirectory. That is preventing us from using 64-bit Windows. So we're being forced to consider pulling the network client out of some of our future Citrix servers. Now, that's just wild for me because you're the first customer I've talked to that actually has looked at Windows 64. Really? Um, yeah, because most of them looked at it, had huge problems with supporting existing applications, and I've heard now that Microsoft has pretty much stopped any customer from going towards it, and they're, of course, pushing them towards Vista because they had a chance to re-architect the way well, that 64 I'm speaking of server, not client. This is the server. Oh, well, then definitely you're the first customer I've talked about, 64-bit uh, servers. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily that there aren't a lot of customers that are doing it. It's the first one you've talked right. to, right? So on that, really, what it comes down to is you're needing Novell to keep up with that side of the technology, with the infrastructural pieces that you've been using on the 32-bit systems. You need us to keep up on the 64-bit side. It would have helped us a lot in a decision we had to make a couple months ago, actually less than a month ago, involving a very rapid growth of our Citrix environment for a new client. We've had to move beyond that already. And interestingly enough, we're seriously considering using virtual machines to run a much higher number of Citrix Metaframe servers because Citrix is licensed predominantly by your concurrent user. And it's not CPU that's your, uh, that's your constraint. It's the memory side of things. It's, well, it's that 32-bit limitation uh, within. So, so the idea as it goes... And I don't know if I'm giving away trade secrets here. I don't think I am. I think any engineer who's used VMware might think of this at some point in time. We're actually going to use processor affinities within multi-core systems to run a number of Metaframe guests under VMware and see if we can improve the number of concurrent users we can get on the same physical box. It means more OS instances, which means more administrative overhead. But fortunately, we're just talking about duplicating the same type of image N number of times. So I'll be real interested to hear what your feedback is like once you do that testing. Yeah. And with that, I think uh, we've gotten 
a huge amount of information out of you. And we really appreciate you taking your time with us, Jim, to come up here and tell us about Hewitt, tell us about how you run the IT organization, tell us how you use Novell, and even to give us some of the uh, candid feedback about that. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure, Ted. My pleasure, Aaron. And that's a wrap for our interview with Jim Bryce. If you are in a company and you want to talk to us about how your company works and how you use Novell software, as well as various other things in your enterprise, drop us a line at openaudio at novell.com and let us know a little bit about the business and why you think it would be good for the Novell Open Audio listening audience. Remember that Novell Open Audio is a production of Novell Users International in conjunction with Novell Incorporated. The various interviews and features that we do on the show are generally driven by the listening audience's requests. If you want to make a request for something that you'd like to hear on the show, or if you want to leave us feedback about a show that you've listened to, you can go to our website, novell.com forward slash open audio, and leave comments right there. You can also email us at the same email address, openaudio at novell.com. That's it for this time. We'll see you next time.